We are live here at Coffee with Humans with my new friend, Julie Wald. Julie, welcome to Coffee with Humans. Thanks for having me. So it is uh, winter out where I'm at in Northern Illinois. I don't know yet where you are. Where are you? I am in Connecticut. It's winter. Connecticut. Oh, is it, is it uh, snowy? Well, we had some we we had some snow before Christmas. It was a white Christmas, um, but since then we've had a fair amount of rain, and now there is no more snow on the ground. Oh no! I hate uh, that about this kind of tepid time of year where it's it because I'm I'm a I'm a, a purist when it comes to winter. I want snow and cold, and then I want it to stay that way until you know, spring when it all thaws out. And I don't, I just don't like it when it gets all the snow is gone. I don't know. Yeah. That's how my husband feels. Actually. I don't feel the same way, but he feels yet when we don't get enough, you know, if we're going to do winter, let's do winter. Like none of this wishy-washy winter kind of a thing. No. Well, we were fortunate. Uh, just recently we had, we, we, uh, did not have a white Christmas because Illinois just didn't get in the game at that time, probably COVID or something. And then right afterwards, we got a lot of snow, which is great. And then fog, this like snowy fog things came in. And now all of the trees are coated in, I think it's called rime ice or something. Uh, it's like those fake trees that you blow the snow on and you wonder if there's a tree underneath of it. That's what all of the trees and the bushes and everything looks like. It's absolutely wonderful and gorgeous and levels up our little city. So. Yeah, it sounds sparkly and beautiful. I'm excited. So, uh, Coffee with Humans. How did you How did you find out about Coffee with Humans, and what inspired you to click the button to have coffee with me? Yeah, well, someone on our on my team um, sort of forwarded me this and said you should do this, and I took a look and really. You know, to be honest, the the reason why I was open to doing it is really twofold. The first is because I I just appreciated the um, the intention around the authenticity and just the openness of this conversation. I've learned both in my work as a as a social worker and as a wellness professional that um, network diversity is really important and having conversations with all different kinds of people is really, really good for our mental health and well-being. And so just the opportunity to speak with different people who aren't in my immediate circle is something that I'm really trying to welcome in, particularly during the pandemic when those interactions are a little less organic. And, um, and secondly, because, you know, my background in what we're doing, um, is really important part of the conversation right now because people are suffering a lot. And so any opportunity that I have to, to talk out loud about that um, and to converse with another interesting, intelligent person um, is something that I I welcome in. So that's why I'm here. Awesome. Well, I hope to, uh, I hope to set to uh, contribute to your expectation of interesting and intelligent. So (laughs) we'll see. So one, one of the things you wrote in, as you were, uh, as you were signing up, for your time here on coffee with humans was that you wanted to talk about mental health and you said mental health crisis and you expanded into a national mental health crisis. And I'm curious, uh, those are strong words. Those are big words. How do you view or what do you view as the crisis when you think of national mental health crisis? Yeah. So, um, amazing question. So we, um, so one of the things that I do is we work a lot with organizations, some really large organizations that employ a lot of people. And one of the things that those organizations do is they come to us, you know, to support their employees around mental health and well-being. And we've been doing this since 2003. Now, one of the, um, the thing that's been really interesting since the pandemic started is that, you know, that the need for that, the need for that support in organizations around mental health has, has, has dramatically increased. And, and the statistics are actually pretty staggering. So um, I think Kaiser family foundation put out a survey several months ago around the fact that, you know, pre pandemic, maybe 15 to 20% of us employees would identify themselves as having kind of a pre-existing mental health issue, anxiety, depression, maybe they sought out, you know, external help uh, from a mental health professional. Maybe they use their company's EAP or employee assistance program. Um, 
but that was kind of the baseline in our pre-pandemic already stressed out culture. And really what we've seen um, in the statistics that I saw as of this fall were that that number has now gone north of 60% of people are concerned about their mental health and well-being. And people are also, you know, and what we hear just out in the field is, is huge levels of um, concern and crisis, not only about people's own mental health, but the mental health of their children the mental health of their of their aging parents and so um that's really where that concept of crisis um or that word comes to mind because i think on the heels of the pandemic the ramifications on a mental health um basis are are just enormous they're already here and they're going to be with us for a long time yeah because cri- the word crisis seems to be um a, a, a word that's very acute in nature right so it's it's a time it's period and has to be dealt with and if it's not dealt with then terrible things happen and if it is dealt with then we get out you know of maybe better for it but at least we get out of it and and it seems and i've heard and i've heard other people talk about this idea of you know mental health crisis and um and one of my one of the uh, i had a podcast with the gentleman mark metry um, he's, uh, he wrote a book called, um, screw being shy. The, he talks about, instead of using the word mental health, he talks about brain health mm. and expanding the conversation outside of just the things that we think about and how, and how we reason into a more holistic nature of our brain is a physical entity as well. It's not just, you know, it's not just elect, you know, uh, electrical impulses bopping around, uh, it is, it's a, it's a physical entity that's also, uh, built on or connected to our body and what we take into our bodies. Uh, and he, he, so he kind of expanded this whole thing into, you know, why in terms of mental health, people ought to be talking also about what you eat, uh, and how you care for yourself in your, how you care for your body, what time, what, what time do you wake up? What time do you go to bed? What sort of routines do you have in place for your physical nature? So as to help your mental nature, because the two are, the two are so inextricably linked. And, and it seems, it seems that maybe, and it's just a layman's opinion, obviously, but it seems that disrupting routine now also has disrupted our you know, our mental capacity as well, uh, and how we think and has led us maybe some, some folks, certainly me in some ways down these, the, you know, roads that we can classified as, you know, Hey, we got a mental health issue. Um, when, when was it, is it now just being caused or was it always there? You know, what, what's the onset nature of it is part of the, you know, part of the issue, how do we get into this crisis? What are the, what are the leading indicators? And I don't have an answer for it, but yeah. Clearly a lot of the world has changed, you know, what, what are you seeing as, as some of those, some of those interconnections and, and how much of it has to do with the fact that people are now at home, not in a routine, not eating healthily, you know, not taking care of themselves in the ways that they would have had they, you know, had to go, you know, go to a job or maybe there are some people who've lost their jobs too, I suppose. And they don't have a routine. They don't have any of these things that are binders maybe that keep a life together. Yeah, no, you're spot on. So, so basically, you know, what we think of and what we talk a lot about of, and I do a lot of speaking on this is, is what we call the four pillars of wellness. And, and this is, you know, and when we say wellness, we're talking about mental health and physical health and well-being, sort of that global well-being, um, because they're, inextricable really. And really those four pillars, as we have coined them at Namaste, are our movement, stillness, connection, and nourishment. So the idea is that these are sort of like the four basic food groups that you need, um, or these are, these are the ingredients that a newborn baby needs to thrive. I don't know if you're a parent, I have three kids, like you, anybody who's had a kid knows that like that baby needs to get just enough movement, enough rest, good food and enough connection. And if there's no other underlying major issue, they'll be okay. And what happens is as early as 
elementary school, people start to forget about the importance of these four pillars. You know, all of a sudden the kids up late doing homework and eating, you know, junk food all the time. And, and, and those four pillars start to slip. And by the time we reach adulthood, oftentimes there's just major gaping holes in people's fundamental practices or habitual behavior that set us up for mental and physical health and well-being. Yeah. Um, you combine kind of that baseline with the fact that during a pandemic, so many of the activities that we did to support ourselves, to stay in, in sort of mental health language in what's called a window of tolerance for stress. So for example, maybe you went out to dinner with friends once or twice a week. Maybe you went to the Y, maybe you had a group fitness class, or, you know, there's a lot of different things that, that you may have done that were really the way that you, you know, stayed healthy amidst an already stressful experience. And those keep you in your window of tolerance. When those, when those things go away, all of a sudden, you know, people are floundering and that's what happened when the pandemic first started. It was like the people, you know, who had these fundamental behaviors and routines that really are what helped them manage stress day to day, all of a sudden had to create completely new behavior patterns and completely new habits. And that is way easier said than done. It's, it's behavior change is extraordinarily challenging. And so, um, it can also be really, really simple, but it's definitely not easy. And so, I think you kind of mix all of those things together. The fact that we were stripped of these coping strategies, that bringing on new behaviors is hard. And many of us were already coming to the table with perhaps an imbalanced kind of four pillars um, already that all of a sudden the structure becomes really shaky. And if you have an underlying predisposition, maybe it runs in your family to anxiety or depression or any of these issues that historically you've been able to kind of keep at bay, which most people do. We're all managing these sort of liabilities. Um, all of a sudden, you know, that the ability to keep those things at bay disappears. And that's why we're seeing so many teenagers fall into like really intense depressions right now. And, and, um, all through the life cycle, people are, are kind of, kind of managing that weakest link. Yeah. It seems that people do have this, have a, have a window of tolerance that their bodies and their minds can cope with. And I think each of us have a, um, um, either, either, either more narrow or a wider window of tolerance of the, of the different circumstances outside of the, you know, quote unquote day to day or normal that we can tolerate with, well, with relative ease. And if we spend too much time on one side or the other, either too exciting or, you know, too depressing, then things start to get a little wacky and we don't know what we're doing. It's just like wandering in a fog and, and all of a sudden the fog becomes darkness. And then that leads to all sorts of negative things. It, it seems to me also, and, and maybe your experience in this, I don't know the, when we find ourselves in new situations, we tend to follow them. If, 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 if we think of it like a map, we're on this journey, we find ourselves in a new situation. We go to the nearest map we can find in mentally. And it's usually the one we grew up with. What did mom or dad do? Uh, and if it's not mom or dad, it's who did, who is that other person that I respected or I liked, how did they do it? And then that becomes our accepted norm. And it gives us some confidence, I think, uh, to at least to move through it or at least blame the other person and say, well, but that mom, dad, that's the, what dad did. Right. Uh, and then we find ourselves in this situation where it's seen where, where some of the things that people have uh, intuitively come to trust or intrinsically come to trust, like I have a job, it pays me money and the economy continues and the restaurants don't just randomly close the, the, there has been the massive change to a map that nobody has. Right. right? And it, and, and I think, and I hate to say it, but I think there's some goodness in this that we just have not, we just not haven't experienced as, as maybe the, this last generation, my generation or the prior generation to some degree, which count two or three generations ago, you're, you're having world wars that people are fighting and they're being shipped off to, again, this, like this map, like, how do we deal with this stuff? I don't know. And they learn through it 
we've had relative ease, at least in the US, we've had relative ease for 50 years where the economy is pretty good. I mean, we, we, we bitch about it. Healthcare, the best in the world, but we bitch about it. Education, really good, but we bitch about it. And all of a sudden we end up in the situations like, what if all of these things that we rely on aren't, uh, what if they don't work? Are we still able like in this, it's like this vast thing. Am I still able to eat, to clothe myself, to live, to speak to a neighbor, to right strip away all those things. And that's like, boom, now what do I have? And it's massive, quick inventory, it seems. And I don't, I just don't know that we've been prepared as, as the handful of generations to take that sort of inventory and say, okay, if I had to build this from a foundation up, what does that foundation even look like? I don't know. Totally. No, we have, we've been stripped of our frame of reference. You know, usually, as you mentioned, like we either do something similar to how our parents did it, or we do it the opposite of how they did it because of whatever our feelings are, or we, we have some relationship to, to, to things that we're responding to. And, and what happens, what's happened is that nobody, you're right. Nobody that's, that's dealing with this alive today for the most part, except maybe people who are very, very, very old, um, have any frame of reference for this. Uh, you know, we don't know, do you let your kids go on screens 15 hours a day because it's a pandemic and you know, they can't leave the house or do you let them have no screens or do you, nobody knows, nobody, all the rules suddenly changed overnight. And, you know, one of the things that, that we talk about in sort of mental health world is, is this concept of, you know, when you're not in your window of tolerance, you're either sort of in a hyper aroused or a hypo aroused state, which is kind of what you described loosely. And my friend um, forwarded me this post from Instagram, I think it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And it said, um, either I'm cleaning the baseboards with a Q-tip or I can't get out of bed. And it's right. like one or the other, you know, there, and, and, and that's like an example of when we're not operating in our window of tolerance, we're sort of in these extreme states. And I don't know about you, but I totally related to that and definitely cleaned the baseboards with a Q-tip at one point when all of a sudden I realized my house is really gross when all of these people have been living here and not leaving for so many weeks and months on end um, and definitely experienced days when, you know, getting out of bed was, was just not, not really happening. Um, so it's, I, I agree. It's, I think that also leads us to this idea of, you know, people need to have some sense of control of their lives. And we is, you know, at least in the U S have had a significant amount of control of our lives. We've come to rely on that. And then all of a sudden when, when we're being told extrinsically, you know, that, that you can't go shopping, you can't go out to eat, you can't do these things for risk of death. I mean, it was like, I mean, it was that big for, for risk if you're going to catch the thing that's going to kill you, which, okay, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But it's the, this all of a sudden, this in, extrinsic pressure. And, and like you talked about, it's like, well, you say, uh, you talk about what are the rules? All the rules have changed. I don't know what the rules are. What are the boundaries? And if I step outside of it, I die. So I want to go into, you know, I think uh, uh, people tend to go into this point of what can I control today? What can I control now? It's like, okay, I can control the cleanliness of my house and I will, and I, it's just like, it's satisfying to simply get control, right? <laughs> control back. Is it meaningless? Maybe, but, <laughs> but Absolutely. shoot, in that moment, it's everything because I can, I can, you know, Q-tip, Q-tip control that. Ryan, uh, one of our listeners here regarding to kids and teens, do you think the information uh, be taught in the schools could be factor in the increasing depression rates, which, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting topic too. Even our kids have been stripped of their normal, you know, social, social, uh, social engagements. And I think that there was a rising depression rate. There are rising depression rates anyhow in, in children because of not being able, I think they've been taught to not socialize in some degree, uh, to some degree, because they've been, you know, sitting on screens. They don't even know how to know how to have conversations. Like, Oh my gosh, I'm sitting next to this person. What do I say? <laughs> you know, like ah! anxiety. Uh, what, what's your take on kids and teens and this increase in depression rates? 
Yeah. So I'm a mom of a, of a 15 year old, a 13 year old and a 10 year old. Um, so I'm kind of in the, you know, thick of it, thick of it. And, um, you know, what I've, what I've really, and, and I've also been a clinical social worker for many years and worked with kids and families for countless years, um, at this point, but I, you know, I think that just like grownups, kids have been stripped with all of those things that help them stay in that window of tolerance. So, you know, if they played sports after school or even went to gym class or had, um, you know, art class and other types of structure and activity that was part of their day to day that helped them really with those four pillars, movement, stillness, connection and nourishment, you know, just they were eating meals at a regular time because you have to eat breakfast, you know, before school and then you have to eat lunch at lunchtime at school and and that and they fall into that kind of a structure you know that it requires going to bed at a decent hour because you have to wake up earlier or it requires you know moving from place to place um it requires as you said kind of face-to-face connection with your peers where you're not on a screen and you're not texting and you're having to have those social interactions when all of those things get sort of removed and or dramatically changed they're also left floundering. I mean, my, you know, conversation with my 15 year old yesterday was it's absolutely not okay to do school from bed. And, and he's like, you're crazy. Like I'm on the honor roll. I do really well. Like, why can't I do school from bed? And I said, well, you know, cause no wonder why you can't sleep at night if you don't get out of bed during the day and you're not moving enough. And then, you know, of course I'm here working all day. So all of a sudden it's some random time of the day and he's hungry. So he just goes in the kitchen and eats like, you know, 10 cookies because nobody's <laughs> there to make him lunch or to tell, you know, it, it's, and so there's this massive dysregulation. And then funny enough, I, I went to one of my colleagues after I had this, this conversation with my son where I attempted to get him out of bed and PS it did not work, but I went to my, I went to my colleague and I said, um, I'm sorry, I'm a minute late for this call. I was having an argument with my, you know, with my son about getting out of bed and, you know, it was like one in the afternoon or something. And she started laughing and she said, you know, I just read an article about this and she forwarded it to me. And this article was all about how for these kids who've had so much loss that actually like the win for them is screw you. I'm going to do, do school from bed. Like if, 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 everything else is taken away and I still have to like get up and sit in my desk and pretend to be such a high functioning, you know, student, like where's, where's the win in it for me here. And so maybe for a 15 year old, the win is, you know what? Cool. If I'm not going to do any of these other things and I'm going to get control over my life and I'm going to do school from bed because I have control because this is my show. (laughs) And, you know, I quickly laughed and I just decided, you know what? I guess if he is still on honor roll and he's doing all right and he's doing school from bed, like I, I can't fight that battle anymore. Like me arguing with him about this. I mean, he knows what I do. He knows about the four pillars. He's read my book. Like his mom's a, a wellness expert, so to speak. And so, um, at the end of the day, he needs control over his life. He needs to have whatever his silver lining is version as a 15 year old, but keep in mind that, He's been stripped of all of these other things that keep him mentally and physically healthy on it on a daily. And, um, it's just, it's hard. Yeah. It is an exercise, uh, in do the, do the results or are results enough? Cause there's been lots of conversations in the workplace for years about, uh, kind of the results based work and, and getting away from this idea that I have to see you every day and watch you as an employer. Uh, and if I can count the number of hours you've been there, then somehow you've produced something for me. And therefore, you know, we, we keep you around to, you know, moving this, moving away from that kind of paradigm into, well, did you get the job done or not? And then maybe it doesn't matter where you did the job or when you did the job. It seems that we've, we've flipped that now onto our kids and I've got a 14 year old as well. And I have the same conversation. You've got to get out of your damn bed. You cannot sit there with like in the dark. Right. With a screen. Oh. You know, she's like, I'm doing my work. I'm like, prove it. You know, <laughs> it doesn't look like work. 
And from the phone, the whole you know day can actually be done from the phone. Right. And it seems that like, okay, well, if the result, if they're getting results, how's that play into, you know, this idea that we have to, we have, you know, train kids and lead kids in, in some sort of framework that they can take and run with because 20 years from now, they're going to be looking back going, well, what was the framework, you know, mom and dad put in front of me and, or the people I respected put in front of me to live my life. Because it's extraordinary, like you talked about, it's extraordinarily make it's extraordinarily difficult to make change. It's extraordinarily difficult for adults to put any framework into their lives too. To you know, people want to talk about being better, but God bless them, they won't because they just don't want to put any framework together to do it. It's difficult. So we, if we don't train our kids as a young age, they don't. It's we're we're just giving it. We're making their lives more difficult. Only we're not going to see it for the next decade or two, and that's. That I mean, that's the where kind of this insidious part of, hey, the 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 script has been flipped on all of us. Some of us tend to move easily through there more easily than others through that. And some people are they being are they getting lost in this? Because there's not a real way to measure, you know, their their processes or their systems that are going to make them successful. And there's the extrinsic pressures have changed dramatically. There are some schools that, you know, the kid gets online and they're required to have the camera on. There are some schools, the kid gets online that's just required to have a name and a little box there. I gave a speech to, I, they were asked me to talk about jobs or whatever. And I talking to probably, I don't know, 50, 60 kids on this zoom call. And there was one, one girl talking. And there, maybe there are three other people or four other people with their video on those other kids. I swear they were asleep. They, they, they just turned it on and they sat there, you know, and the right. teacher didn't know what to do with it. It's I, it is interesting that what, what's going to happen, how do we pay for this, you know, down the road and how, and are we setting people up for fa massive failure and significant, not just mental health stuff now, but shoot, now, when you're not now, when you can't perform 10, 20 years from now, because you have no discipline or limited discipline, I don't, I it's to me, it's worrisome. And if we're seeing an uptick in depression and, you know, serious mental health issues now that are being fixed through medications or whatever else, it's like, how do we ever get ourselves back on track? I don't, I don't know. I have no answers for that. And I'm not, you know, I've never walked a mile in your shoes at all, you know, in terms of social work. Um, and I, you know, I deal with my own mental issues, but uh, nothing extraordinary, you know, and that's, I, I don't know. I, I, it's a real problem. And I see it in my one kid. She's my last, she's my 14 year old. I've got a 20, 21 year old and a 20 year old as well. Um, they deal with it in their own way. How are they doing with this? That's an interesting age too. The college age kids are young adults. I mean, we work with a lot of companies that have a huge young millennial um, workforce or even, you know, and they, and there's so many of these young adults are kind of isolated in their apartments It's particularly, you know, we're outside of New York city, like, you know, kind of trapped in these tiny little apartments in New York city and, um, trying to work and, and being so young and not, you know, I remember when you're young, you know, when I was that age, it was, I was just constantly learning and absorbing from everyone around me. And so, you know, they're operating in a totally different environment. How are your older kids doing? So I've, I've got, if you take my personality and then slice me down the middle, that's my two boys. Those are my oldest guys. And I've got my 21 year old. He is, um, he's very quiet. He's, he's an introvert. Once you get to know him, once he gets to know you, he's super comfortable, but he's got high anxiety going into new situations and new people. And I've coached him and forced him at times as a dad to like, Hey, you're going to go to this group, but you're going to hang out with these people. You're, you know, you're, but you, cause, cause you have to complete the loop. Sometimes it's like, I have super high anxiety, but all of my fears were unfounded and I'm safe. Right right? You got to complete the success loop. Just, you can't stay in the, in the high anxiety loop and never, never see. It's like, it turns out fine. And yeah. so I've, I've worked with him in certain situations because I see that. And that I have my own tendencies in that I'm an introvert 
and I have a, I have a resistance sometimes to seeing people, but I'll go like, ah, that's fine. I know it's good for me. And it, and I, I enjoy it. It's not that I don't enjoy people, but there's a resistance. I know the resistance. I feel it. So, um, he though going, he's just graduated from school in a, with a finance degree in something else doesn't have a job yet. And job searches aren't just, you know, go have interviews and whatnot. It's all online. So he's lost. I mean, he's lost in this online universe of not really knowing anybody. It's just, you're always behind some sort of, it's like being behind text messages constantly and emails. It's a totally different world. It's not connected. Um, it's a different type of connection, but it's not, it's not connection. Then I've got my second kid. He's 20. He's Mr. Extrovert. Always, you know, always meet new people, always have a great time. He's selling insurance full-time while going to school full-time in Phoenix or something like that. And he cold calls people constantly to sell them insurance and loves it. And, and so he couldn't care less whether it was on the phone or whether he had to see in person. It doesn't matter to him. He's just like thrive, 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 go, 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 do, 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 do. And the, and, and they are, they are opposites. They're, they're at, they are at the extremes. It was, it was interesting though, when they were growing up, they were, uh, what a year and six days apart. So they were like twins. And it was so interesting that the two fed off of one another and they would have the same friend groups, but it was clear that one of them kind of brought those friends in. And then the other one assimilated into that environment and vice versa. And now that they are living in separate areas, um, it, it's interesting to see them socially just become, you know, remarkably different. Yeah. In how it plays out. It's fascinating to me. Um, yeah. it, it, you're making me think of just so many people that I know and how some people, you know, I mean, listen, there's been, there's so much suffering and, and, and so much darkness right now. So I just, like that being said and understood, you know, there are many people that I know who are love. They say, I'm, I'm, I'm really loving this, this pandemic lifestyle. You know, I'm loving never having to go, to, to go anywhere or to have people over to entertain or to, you know, be in big groups because I'm more of an introvert and I was overwhelmed by this previously busy lifestyle. And then there are people who, you know, really thrive on that human connection and, um, you know, celebrations and big events and part, you know, and, and that's just what, um, you know, what feeds them. And, and they're having a very, very different experience. Um, and it's been interesting to sort of watch the way different people are responding to this massive shift in lifestyle. Um, and it's certainly not all bad for everybody. Plenty of people are, are enjoying the many, you know, silver linings that have come along with, with our situation. But yeah. um, I wonder to what degree sometimes we though look for, um, if I, if I use my boys, an example of those, the, the, the types of people that you see in the world, you know, and if we were, if we were to simplify it, it's the, it's the people who naturally thrive in, you know, bigger groups, noisy environments, and the people who, you know, naturally thrive in smaller groups and quiet environments. Um, and each of us is kind of along that spectrum. And I know, I understand it's more complicated than that, but the degree to which we need each other to pull ourselves sometimes out of the thing that we naturally drift into because the each one of those can become a kind of a recalcitrance in its own way. It's like we become so fixed in this environment. I can, I can imagine, and I'm one of them. I'm like, oh, great. I'm in my own little space. I don't have to talk to people. I don't have to see people much. It's harder for me now to go flip the switch into like, and I'm going to go see people because I've just become, I've just be kind of settled. It's like settling into one of those, you know, mattresses that like warps around your body. It's like, Oh, I can't get out. Eh, I'll just stay here. I, I think that there's such, there's a, there's something that we've missed or lost, which I think will snap back. I think people just kind of snap back, but I feel like we'll snap back into this idea that we'll, when we have to see each other face-to-face uh, -face and in workplaces with disciplines, that this balance will start to be regained. But it, it does right now seem to be that we've moved to extremes. And I don't, in extremes, I, I, uh, 
I mean, it, it is what it is. What do you say about it? It's like, yep, it is. But I, how do people recognize that in themselves? I don't know. Everybody recognizes that in themselves and then decides to do something about it. You know, like I've been too disconnected. Right. Some people just like settle in and then yeah. what do you do? I, I hear you. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't know the answer, but I do know that, you know, one of the phrases that we use a lot and I learned it, I don't even know who was the original person who said this, but um, you know, it's, we are the company we keep. So keep good company. And when, when we surround ourselves with different types of people, you know, it helps to really bring out kind of the best in us in a way that, you know, even if we, we, we strongly, um, lean towards being more introverted, there's still a part of us that needs and, and thrives off and wants a certain amount of connection. It doesn't mean that we're ever going to be that big, huge party person. And that that's, you know, that we don't want to stay an introvert. It's okay to be an introvert, but, but there's balancing variables that come in so that, um, you know, we are another phrase we use a lot is our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. And that's one that my parents used to always say, but it's like that, that same thing about us that, that probably makes us pretty awesome in a lot of ways is also a liability. And so, um, how do we, you know, how do we use the people that we surround ourselves and the company we keep to kind of bring out, um, you know, a more, a more holistic version of ourselves in a way that, um, you know, that these different sides are, are being expressed. And I think that's what happens naturally. That's what, that's what your boys did, right? They kind of, they rubbed off on each other and they were able together to, to, um, create more community and more connection as a result of that, um, without taking away their inherent kind of the beauty and specialness of, of who they are. And, you know, it reminds me of this concept of the four pillars again, because we talk a lot about that. It's like, you know, yes, we say movement, stillness, connection, and nourishment, but it's not always even for everybody, right? Some of us yeah. are just movers. Like that's our primary, but that doesn't mean that we don't need sleep, that we don't need good food, that we don't need connection. Other people just naturally are, you know, geared towards more stillness. They're, they're, they meditate, they like to, you know, read books and, and, and that's a space that they, you know, they really love, but it doesn't mean that they, sh they shouldn't move and they, and, but it, they might not go do an Ironman triathlon because that's not their jam, but they still need, you know, these are the four basic ingredients in different amounts based on who you are, because you don't want to take away the essence, you know, of your individual personality, but, but these other ingredients are needed in order for the cake to rise. And so right. otherwise it just kind of can fall, <laughs> fall a little short. No, that's totally true. I think it, it, it does under, underscore how we each play a role and if we learn who we are as individuals and spend some time thinking about it, and, and I think a lot of people just do themselves and the world a disservice by not understanding who they are. Um, but once we stand to understand who we are, we can, we can understand our particular role and how that's so important in our scope of influence our, or our sphere of influence, the people that we contact each day and we're in our midst. If we bring our fullness into that space, th that makes that area our fullness makes that area better. And when we withhold out of ignorance or out of, or out of like, I'm not going to be this person anymore. Mm, I'm sorry. You've lost. You're, you're not, uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're, you're not, um, there's a quote I've seen. I feel like I keep saying this quote It's from, uh, Carolyn McHugh. Uh, and she says, um, she had a great Ted talk. The quote is something like, most of us don't take up nearly the space the universe intended for us. Hmm. And it was like that. Wow. Most of us don't take up nearly the space the universe intended for us. And there's all sorts of reasons we don't take up that space or don't bring ourselves into our fullness in that space. And then we look back. It's the person, you, you know, it's the, it's the 80 year old you talk to and you say, Hey, you know, tell me about your life. And they're like, I wish I could have. And I wish I should have, and I, right. I could have, should have, would have versus the person who's like, man, you've done all of those things. You, you did what? And they're, and it's a, it's a, it's a very different spirit. They radiate, right? The person who, 
uh, the person who has lived into their fullness and the person who has not. And, and what an opportunity for us in the moment as we see it to go, I intend to live into my fullness. What does that mean? Right. And I, we intuitively know what it is. And we're just, I think sometimes a little stuck and sometimes a little lost and sometimes need somebody else to invite us in, you know, say, Hey, this space is for you. Um, cause like you say, there's some people who are naturally movers and there's some people who are naturally a little more quiet and there's some people who are gifted in understanding of bodies. And, um, how do you see, so you talk about this in employers and I know one of your notes said, you, you know, how do you work with employees in this situation? To what degree is this even an employer's responsibility? Do you think when the historically, at least the employer is there to provide a paycheck for work received and a sort of a transactional environment. It seems we're moving away from the transactional environment into a relationship based environment, which transactions become a little more nebulous, <laughs> you know, yeah. what, what's your view of the world? Well, you know, it's what, what we know happens is that, and, and one of the sort of first reasons why employers think about this is because, um, the well-being, the mental health of their employees impacts their business. It impacts their bottom line. So, you know, one of the statistics we bumped into, again, I think this was from Kaiser Family Foundation, is that, you know, currently employees are losing about 10% of productivity due to um, all of these issues that we're talking about, the stress-related issues. And, um, if you're an employer that employs, you know, a thousand or 10,000 employees, that's a lot of money. <laughs> if, yeah. if each one of those employees are losing 10% of their productivity. And so if you could invest, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year on supporting employees, mental health and well-being, and therefore could gain back a million dollars worth of productivity based on your payroll, then that's a good return on investment. You know, the other thing is that, um, mental health issues drive up healthcare costs really significantly and, and employers are really concerned about that. That's a big number. And so, you know, if you have diabetes and then you, and you throw on depression or you throw on, you know, some of these other issues, all of a sudden, I think the statistics is around 200 to 300% increase when you pile on a mental health issue, because don't forget mental health issues called cause back pain. They cause neck pain. They cause oftentimes they yeah. become a slippery slope to substance abuse issues. It's, it's, it's complicated. Um, and so I think to be honest, I mean, great leaders obviously, um, you know, lead people and are compassionate and care about people's well-being and want humans that, that they're connected to, to be thriving. Um, but they also want their business to thrive and mm -hmm. investing in your human capital around their mental health and well-being is a really good way to, um, to manage that. And so, so yeah, that's why employers care both great leaders care because you should care, but, um, they also care because it impacts their business. Sure. The, I guess that the line of responsibility then, right, is uh, it changes for each of us, right? Yeah. So how much responsibility, like for my kids, you know, how much, how much responsibility do I take for my 21 year old, you know? And it's a, sometimes it, the, that line has to move a bit and the line of responsibility I take for one kid might be a different line I would take for another kid because, because of who, the nature that I see in each of them. And the, uh, and so I might invite one to take a bit more, you know, a bit more responsibility for himself, uh, because he is, and he can, and he's thriving in that, whereas somebody else might not be. And, and it's not that I care about him any less, and it's not that he's not going to be as successful or whatever is the other kid, but the, that the, 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 it has to be more an individualized approach, it seems, and getting to know the individual, which in an employer-employee scenario, that gets a little dicey and it becomes, I think, overwhelming. What do you say to a small employer, you know, a person who's got 10 individuals and doesn't have, you know, a system in place, doesn't have an HR team, doesn't have, 
you know, policies and procedures necessarily in place. Um, is that, is that better? Is that worse because they've got that high touch environment or is it easier one way or the, or the other? What do you, what do you see? And what do you recommend? It depends on the leadership's kind of, um, mentality. Um, you know, I think, you know, we talk to a lot of organizations and we believe, and most of the organizations that we work with believe that, that life is actually really a team game and that you're not meant to, to have to figure it all out on your own. And you're a team with your family, you know, your sons are part of your team and you're there for them when they need to pass the ball to you. And when you can pass the ball back to them, and sometimes they're going to be limping off the field and you're going to hold them. And other times you're going to be celebrating the touchdown and it's going to be everything that you do on a team. And the same thing goes for work and work environment. You know, it's, it's a team game. And if you can't kind of look out for each other and, and try to understand, you know, how can I take off something that's off your plate because I have more bandwidth today or how can I, you know, how can I support you? And and I think for smaller teams, you know, it first and foremost, it's just about um, kind of keeping it real and, and saying, you know, how's everybody doing? How are you doing? Like, how can we come together in a way that's more supportive as, as a team, you know, should we do some sort of a wellness activity, a guided meditation or an experience like that? Or, or, or should we do, um, a virtual cocktail hour or, you know, what, what should we do to, to be a team and to, and to sort of connect together in that way and to be able to support and help each other. And I think it, 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 regardless of the size of the organization, it really is about, that intention and communicating that intention and then figuring out, you know, what the manifestation of that looks like in your organization. And, and that will vary, very greatly depending on the size and the, and the style of, of the company. But, um, the companies that are approaching this as a team game are, are really, um, not only, surviving through the crisis, but as you met, it's like an opportunity to, to actually build and, and thrive and kind of, we know how, how it feels when you've gone through a hard time with an old friend or with someone, you know, it, when you've relationships are built out of shared experiences, that's what builds relationships. That's why you still feel connected to some person you went to high school with that you, you know, I don't know, went to a million parties with, or, you know, ran through the woods from the, the suburban cops, if you were me, but you you have these bonds with these people because you've had these shared experiences. And, and I think in an organization, when you can, when you can create a safe context for the shared experience, it has the opportunity to really help you kind of come out the other side of this, um, or even within it in a much stronger way. Yeah. It feels like, um, feels like a time of like quicksand. The more you fight it, the more you sink. Mm -hmm. And instead it's like, what do I, what can I relax into? And then not only relax into, but what, who, who can I look around to? Who's not in that same, you know, in that same space, because everybody's not struggling quite the same way who can help me come out of this. But the more we fight these times of struggle, it seems the, the, the harder it becomes to get out of them and move through them instead of like you talk about, um, shared, shared struggle, shared experiences has a way of bonding us. And, and when we come out of it, we come out of it, I think with ironically, some sort of joy that, man, we did that. That was real shitty, but we did it and look, it's like, and now also we have that strength we can carry on to the next day and the next moment and come out of it stronger and better. Um, rather than, I think rather than drifting away and becoming, you know, going into the darkness, I don't think that, 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 uh, resigning, you know, resigning to the fact that it's a difficult time, but we'll make it through. I think that's probably part of the element. And then I, so I, I launched coffee with humans back in April. Um, because like, you know, you probably like you sensed as well, people were really struggling with connection and there, and it seemed like there was a fog of darkness sort of descending on the land and there, and the people who were not becoming angry about it 
some 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 of those folks were were the energy was moving in the opposite you know the opposite direction of just like and this is where i die this is terrible and everything's getting worse and this is the world ending as well and i remember thinking well i'm not going to do that i i know what that feeling is like and i'm not going to do that um instead i'm going to make it super easy to connect mm. and i just popped out i put on linkedin i'm going to have 52 coffees this year uh, with people I don't know. And if you want to have coffee with me, I'll have coffee with you. And it was like, boom, that day people signed up to just talk about anything. And, and it, it, and it expressed it, it showed me that there is this void of connection. Everybody feels it. We express that in, in different ways though. And everybody to some degree is struggling in a unique, in a unique way during this. Um, and, and it's not all roses, even the, even the organizations that, you know, they're like, Hey, we, we thrive because we're, you know, made PPE and stuff like that. It's like, that's cool. They're connected to somebody, you know, across the street who's, you know, lost their job and it's not coming back. And none of us, it is that time of war that this generation gets where none of us are left untouched. It's just, what are you going to do with it? What's the, what's the opportunity? And so, you know, it's great talking with folks like you who have a finger on the pulse of, you know, minds and people and relationships and your motivation, your drive is to, um, it, it seems to take whatever wisdom and skills and experience you have. And then how can you, um, you know, positively infect, you know, other folks, you know, with, with something that's good with tools they can use. And, um, that I think is maybe, maybe people like that would not have that sort of drive, uh, in quite the same way, even had there not been a time of crisis to be like, I, now I have to do this, you know? It's very, very true. And that's the one, you know, the one thing that, that we've definitely seen is that people have been really pushed to, um, uh, to grow, uh, you know, a, a very early on amazing human that I, um, knew back in the beginning of my career, she was actually my therapist when I was in my early twenties and training to be a therapist myself. Um, and she used to say when something was really hard, she would say, Oh, that's an AFCO. And I said, well, what's an AFCO? And she said, it's another fucking growth opportunity. Right. <laughs> Just when you need. Just when you didn't want to be any more evolved, any wiser, any smarter, any stronger, you get another growth opportunity just for you. And so, you know, it's kind of this whole thing feels like a big AFCO um, in so many ways, granted much, you know, worse for many who are, are suffering in ways that are more irreparable or who've had loss. There's so much grief. Um, but, but for, for a lot of people, you know, there's, there's a lot of growing happening on a lot of, on a lot of different levels. And, um, you know, one of the things that I learned really early on, which has really helped me, and this kind of comes from my meditation and sort of more Buddhist studies background is, is that, um, suffering is really an inevitable part of life. And when you can adjust your expectations to accept that, um, then you can be a lot more present and open to the journey. And, and I think that that, um, has just been a key idea for me always around my relationship to pain and suffering is that it's inevitable. Absolutely. I think this is, um, I don't like to suffer, but I think this is an opportunity. Um, and I, I wrote an article on LinkedIn called 15,000 days left or why I dance. And, uh, I said, you know, I've got probably 15,000 days left if I live an average lifespan. Uh, but I might not because, you know, on my father's side, people lived into their hundreds and, you know, <laughs> so that could be a problem, <laughs> you know? And so, so anyhow, I was thinking like, we've, it was this idea of, of we've reached this time of, 
in this 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 society at least right now uh in this generation and in my generation the one prior maybe where we've not suffered intensely not on a whole on, on a whole we've had it pretty good and um and we have we expect that now and we live with this myopic viewpoint that that's just what life is supposed to be and when it veers outside of that or whether we tr you know travel on the other side of the world and see that that's you're living a charmed life you know and the things that you get to the things that we get to discuss and argue about whether we're going to you know like it's it's we are privileged mm -hmm. and we don't even know it because it's just our norm and you can't so you can't even you, know, you can't even beat people up for it. it's like that's a norm you didn't know any different and and so, you know, maybe it's good for us to have this time of suffering because, because it, it has a way of clarifying what's important and what's not important. And it has a way of pushing us forward or drawing us forward into the, into, uh, with an energy that we otherwise would not have had. Uh, and then also, you know, and so I, I, you know, brought it back into this idea. So it's like, you know, maybe, maybe in all of this stuff, it also gives us appreciation for the things that we complained about before. And, uh, and I said, so, you know, maybe when we get all the, get back together, we can dance. And I drew the picture of, of, uh, what I say, something like there's a, you know, there's a pretty lady on the dance floor and she looks back and her guy's sitting at the table and she's like beckoning him to come dance. And the guy's like, I'm not going to dance. I don't dance. You know, and she's like, no, come on, dance. He's like, I'm not going to dance. And I said, he's, he said he's, he's clenching his drink in one hand and his pride in the other. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I was like, this is an opportunity to get over yourself. Go out and do the thing. Go out and do that thing that people are asking you to do. Go out and do that thing that you want to do. Get over it. Because, hey, you know, this, this, yeah, maybe this, maybe this will kill you, but you're going to die eventually. So what, like you get, get through this, move through this and just walk into that fullness of life. Live, live now, live fully now. Cause everybody else who's so afraid of you living of, of them living fully now wants to see that there's somebody who's going to do it because that might give them the inclination to do it as well. So I don't know. Love that. So true. So wise. Well, I'm going to put your link up here, namastewellness.com. For those people who um, are are uh, in that point, maybe of need, uh, or who want to have a follow-up conversation, who's who's who are the folks that you're kind of speaking to uh, in your sphere of influence? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I speak with a lot of um, human resource leaders. I speak with a lot of... Um, leaders in the corporate space, CEOs, CFOs, um, CIOs that are trying to figure out how to support their organizations. And I've also had a long history of working with individuals. Um, I'm at my heart and soul. I'm, I'm a therapist and a coach. Um, I happen to own a business that does all these things, which is a huge passion of mine, but I love to, to, to work with people. And so I work with a lot of people in a wellness coaching capacity, um, primarily kind of, uh, people who are in leadership roles in some way, shape or form. Um, but that's, that's my, that's my sphere. Awesome. Well, thanks Julie for having coffee with me today. I appreciate it to all our viewers and listeners. Thanks for joining us for another coffee with humans. Thanks Jason. All right. Bye. 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 One of the things I love about Coffee with Humans are the raw conversations I get to have meeting new people just like you. If you or someone you know should be on Coffee with Humans, go to coffeewithhumans.com. Remember, the only rule is no sales calls. This has been Coffee with Humans. Subscribe to get updates or click to have coffee with me. Coffeewithhumans.com.